Well, thanks for coming to Surf Soapbox. Really energetic crowd, lots of voices. Thanks for starting 2012 with us. This is an exciting year. We have a lot of speakers lined up. If you guys have not been to ZerfSoapbox.com, we're laying out schedule there all the way through June now. We have um, Aaron Levy coming up in two weeks, the founder of Box.net. So um, just check out ZerfSoapbox.com. Awesome, awesome speakers coming up. With that, I'd love to introduce Mr. Patrick Byrne, Dr. Patrick Byrne, but not a doctor, right, Patrick? Just call him Patrick. Right. <laughs> uh, one of top 25 influential people in e-business right. by Business Week, right? Knock on wood. <laughs> uh, 92% uh, CEO approval rating, highest in the country, right? Of course, the CEO, chairman of the board, and president of Overstock.com has taken charge of the company at a time dot-com bust right around there has turned the company around from $500,000 in revenue to $1.1 billion, taking it public in less than three years after taking charge. Amazing story. Want to get into it? Let's welcome Patrick Byrne to Zerb Soapbox. Thank you very much. Awesome. Kevin cool. Wow. Uh, you can sit down. Okay. Thanks for driving out. I mean, flying out. You came out from Utah, right? It's my honor, yes. How, how's the mic? You guys can hear me pretty well? Hear him pretty well? Okay, cool. So let's, let's get into it. And I, I'd love to kind of start with uh, this six-month mentality where you have uh, trained yourself to think in these six, what, what, would, what would you do in six months? Well, right? I, I, Dimitri seems to have done a great deal of research. So he's going <laughs> to hold me to things that I, that I said back in the so, But no, I had, a, uh, I had cancer three times in my 20s and spent a couple, two and a half years in the hospital. And when I got out, of course, I didn't realize it was the last time. And so I figured, what do I want to do for six months? And if I'm stick around after, if I'm still around after six months, I'll do something else. But I didn't really want to make any really long-term goals. And uh, I probably was, probably drifted along like that for five or 10 years before I realized that that was a, a pattern that, uh, well, it actually seemed to be a healthy pattern to, if you're, to, to think in terms of not to assume you have 10 or 20 years, but what is it you want to accomplish? And if, God, if the gods whispered in your ear you had six months left, what would you be doing? You know, I know if, if somebody told you you had a week left, I can sort of guess what you'd be doing. It probably wouldn't be too constructive, but if right. somebody told you you had six months, you, start, you try to do something constructive. Anyway, and I just realized over the years that that had become a pattern uh, pattern of thought with me. And how has that helped you throughout your career? You've, you've taken that. Well, I don't know that it has because there are certainly some things that you have to, that you do that you have to, that take longer to pay off than that. But I'd say it has added a certain focus. Okay. And probably made me work a little bit harder than I should have been. So Warren Buffett, I've always, always wondered, you know, how did you meet him? And uh, tell us a little bit about how you worked with him Okay. I, uh, I was extremely fortunate. I was 13 years old. My father was in insurance. And this sort of funny guy from Nebraska named Warren, who no one had ever heard of at the time, started, I mean, he wasn't this famous guy, met, met my pop, and then I met him sort of coincidentally, and we started talking, we hit it off, and he became, we became great friends. He was my teacher, and I would say after my parents, he became my great teacher in life. And it was just kind of odd over the years when I was in my 20s and 30s for him to turn into this phenomenon 
that he has become, because I knew him as just this, like you would know your high school teacher, this fellow who I would, I would write him letters and he would call me and we would discuss things or I'd go and visit him when I could. I always knew he was, my, I knew it was, <clears throat> my parents used to let me skip school whenever he was coming because he would stay with us actually. And my, I, I would know he was coming because my mom would go out and get a case of Pepsi. And back then, back then he always had a hip flask filled with cherry syrup. But, and he would sit there, literally I, I could take, I would skip school and he would sit around with me for hours and drink his Pepsis pouring cherry syrup in. He's actually a teetotaler, but he always had a hip flask with cherry syrup. And then, and then Coke came out with cherry Coke and his whole, his whole world turned upside down. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But he taught me a lot. And you guys, you ended up uh, working for him for a little bit? I went and worked for him for a couple years. And uh, between, I was between other things. And uh, I worked from running some apparel manufacturing businesses. So, sum him up for us. What is he like? Well, I think of Buffett's great. Uh, the right way to understand Buffett is not as a businessman. It's a philosopher who figured out the world, figured out a lot of things about the way the world works. He had a, some, a great teacher himself that he's always quoting in, Ben Graham. And he just applied these principles to business. But his fundamental lessons for us, I think, are not, you know, how to buy a business at four times cash flow. They're much deeper, deeper lessons. That, uh, in fact, there's a great book on him. The, the book that gets this across the best, I think, is probably not the most recent book by Alice Schroeder, but a book by Roger Lowenstein from about mm, 15 years ago called Buffett, The Making of an American Capitalist. And it's actually a very good book about these, these things, he, how he's really lived his life as an object lesson and to prove certain principles. So I can tell you lots of the details of things he, the different lessons he taught me, but that's the really key T for me. Tell us one, tell us one. Uh, okay, a business one or, or a life one? A life one. Life one <laughs> is think of yourself as when you get out of college or whatever, you get a ticket with 20 punches on it. And every time you do something, you're using up one of your 20 punches. And when you're finished with your ticket, you don't really get to make any changes in your life. How we, and you think that way as you take your first job or as you get married or as you make your, an investment. And he, he says that what he got, he tells me now that what he got wrong is saying there are 20 punches. You really would, should reduce it to 10. Because in any case, if you thought of your life that way, too many people go along his other metaphor for it is you're, you're standing at the bat in a very special baseball game where people are not calling, there's no umpire calling balls or strikes. However, you do have a whole crowd next to you shouting at you, swing you bum, swing you bum. And too many people go through bunting at every other pitch. And what you have to do is learn to sit there with your bat on your shoulders for years and you just wait and you wait. And somebody throws you a pitch, and it looks really juicy, but it's a little high and inside. You let it pass. Somebody throws you another. It's you know, a little outside. You let it pass. But every once in a while, every few years, you're going to get a pitch thrown to you that is just the juiciest, fattest pitch you could imagine. And when that happens, you come out of your shoes on it. You swing for the fences on it. And yet that's just the opposite of the strategy most people take through life, that they're trying too many different things. Okay. And he talks about how much better how much you know, wealthier he would be if he had 
uh, if he had avoided the bad pitches. But even he's extremely selective. And even there, you know, it's six or, well, he used to say, and it's been 10 or 15 years as I think we've talked about this, but he used to say six or seven deals had really made him, you know, 120% of everything he had made. Right. And then the other dozen deals or so had, had given him the minus two. Strikes me like a kind farmer character. It's just what he is. He's like this, this, your grandfather, farmer, just this kindly, grand, you know, grandfatherly guy. All these great lessons. I love it. I'll give you a stock lesson. Okay. If you want. His, his, this is a simple one. I remember when I was about 13 or 14, he said, Patrick, I'm going to tell you something. 13. People either get immediately or they never get in all their lives about buying stock. I got all ready for some very complex formula or something. And he said, look, you buy a share of stock. When you're buying a share of stock, you're buying a slice of a company. Buy a share of stock if and only if you would buy it, even if the market were shutting down for five years tomorrow. So you're not thinking of yourself as buying a piece of paper or trying to get in on an uptick. You think of yourself as buying a slice of an enterprise. And do you, Is that something you would own for five years? That's a good thing to remember. <laughs> he'll, he'll go places, that guy. Oh, yeah. He'll become famous. <laughs> so let's come back to, to Overstock. I have tons of questions about Overstock. How did you get, first of all, how did you get involved with Overstock? Well, actually, I had been working for him, and then I retired, and I was doing a little bit of teaching. And this, the, uh, you want the theoretical answer or the rubber meets the road? The rubber meets the road. I knew yeah, you were going to say <laughs> At the fringes of retail, there are people that folks like you and I don't meet. They're called jobbers. And they tend to be, see, mainstream retail is optimized for mass quantities of similar goods from a small number of suppliers. But goods do become available. And you know, Walmart buys something only if they get 200,000. They don't want small quantities. But goods do become available in small quantities. And the people who step in and buy them uh, are called jobbers, and they tend to be bada bing, bada boom. I knows a guy who knows a guy. I got this deal going with Titleist. Got a truckload of Cuisinart blenders. Offer you know, good for you, sixty percent back. A wholesale offer, good for two minutes. That's the, how this whole industry runs. And when you walk down the street in Brooklyn and you see discount electronics view below wholesale, that's where it's coming from because the market compensates these jobbers for the fact that they don't have the efficiencies of normal mass retail by letting them buy at, say, half of normal wholesale. And so our idea was let's start a company. It, wasn't, it was about this size or smaller uh, in terms of physical space. Let's get half a dozen of these jobbers in the room. They'll be wheeling and dealing. We'll get a little warehouse of Salt Lake City, start putting them on the Internet. We won't have everything that Amazon does but what we have, we spent half of wholesale for, so we can beat people on price. So that was the basic rubber meets the road explanation. So you got, get involved, and the, the next thing you got to do is raise some capital? Yeah. What, why did you need capital? Well, we got involved in, we got this started. I actually bought a business that was shutting its doors that, that day, and it was in the flea market industry. And it used to be there were 65,000 people in the country who made their business, their living at flea markets. And this was a supplier to flea markets. And I realized, oh, buying them, this is what we could build overstock out of. We could, this company had some of the contacts. They had the jobbers. And so we got started in October 99. I came out here Thanksgiving. 
of 99. We just launched our website. We had 100 products on it. It was pretty rudimentary. And I was trying to raise, I thought I'd come out here to raise money. Uh, it didn't go well. I think you've heard this story. <laughs> this was 99, 1999? Right. It was pretty so, still like before dot-com bus, money was flowing. Right. This was when I was reading about folks dropping out of Stanford Business School and with a with a business plan on a napkin, they'd go in and raise $100 million. And I just thought, ah, oh, I've worked for Buffett. I'd run a, his, some companies for him. I'd run my own torch, an industrial torch manufacturer. I'd run different things. This is going to be simple. And I came out here, and uh, I went to 55 de different venture capitalists for, to, exp to explain this idea and try to raise money. And I was turned down by 55 venture capitalists, which tells you what a lousy salesman I am. But then this, this marvelous thing happened a few months later called the dot-com crash. And we, <laughs> we discovered that what we had built to handle this, the supply chain we had built to handle these small lots jobbing and overorders or, or whatever worked pretty well on bankruptcies too. And as all these companies went under, we stepped in and started buying them for their inventory and liquidating it. And that's actually how we got our momentum. We, we bought 18 companies funded by, I should mention, the same what? folks who turned us down for money. Oh, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> I'm much, much too mature. Awesome. <laughs> I'm much too mature to take any satisfaction in that. <laughs> there was actually a, uh, a Doonesbury series on us called MyVulture.com about a guy with his business plan, MyVulture.com, to go out and liquidate other .com. And... In fact, I did an interview on when the press got tired of writing the stories about the crash. They started coming out and doing stories on us, and ABC 2020 did a story about what we were doing. And Chris Cuomo sat there, and he said, I'd I, uh, like to know how you feel about, you know, about working on a business model that works on the distress of other people. And I said, well, Warren Buffett always taught me that the first rule of business is if you're not going to kick a man when he's down, when are you going to kick him? <laughs> nice. I Just. like that rule. <laughs> kick him when he's down. I'll stop. I don't know if I'm that's still good. answering your question. No, that's good. I keep going. Buffett, the VCs. Anyway. So, so VCs. But the VCs were great. And I actually look back, and my greatest regret for not getting venture capitalists, capitalists behind us is, it would have really smoothed. We could have had a, uh, a better board quickly, and we could have, it would have helped, saved a, a lot of trouble, saved us three or four years if we'd been able to get a venture capitalist up. What was the pitching session like? What did they, they just didn't like the idea, or? Uh, yeah, I didn't like the idea. It was, it was December 1999 through, say, March 2000, and that's really when the, yeah. People were realizing something was coming. Now, the actual right. crash started around April 15th of 2000. As the people started selling, it was actually when people started selling stock in order to pay their tax bills. So as we came up to April 15th and the weeks leading up to that, and two weeks leading up to that is actually when the bubble burst. All right. And uh, so take us from the 2000 through IPO, that time building the company up to IPO. Did you... 
plan IPO a certain date or? Well, we got, uh, I was very attracted to Bill Hambrecht and the, Bill Hambrecht is a good friend of mine and the, he had started WR Hambrecht and I didn't really approve of, I don't really approve of the normal IPO system and I can yeah, tell please. you why. Traditional IPO, I know Patrick Byrne, traditional IPO, don't mix. Yeah, so. don't mix. We were actually the first to do, we did in 2002, we were the first to do the Dutch auction and this is why. This is, uh, you know, taking you back to your old college economics, yep. supply demand. I remember this. And you get, you know, your banker comes in and tells you, okay, we're going to sell $20 a share, and we're going to sell 10 million shares, and we'll raise you $200 million, and we, the bankers, will take 7% of it. What actually goes on is so you, you spend a couple, and, you know, it, you spend a, a million or $2 million, and you're in, a, you're in a shop, you know, with 20 or 25 people in there. I guess we probably had 50 people and you spend three or four months, and it's really an ugly process, and the, the KPMG guys come in, or the price guys, and you go through all this due diligence, and the law firms, and the bankers have lawyers, and, and it's an ugly two, three, four month process. You spend a couple million dollars getting ready. You go out on the road with a banker, and for six weeks, it's stale ham sandwiches and B.O., and it's a, oh. just... <laughs> and you're presenting and presenting and presenting. And then at the end, and this is the big joke to anyone who's worked in investment banking, is the pricing meeting. Because it's when they, that these guys who have become your close friends, these bankers, come in and they stick it to you. They come in and they say, and, you know, the whole time on the road show, ah, oh, we're ten times oversubscribed. They love us here. They love us. They keep you all pepped up. And then the night before you go public, they come in and they say, you know, the the new numbers out on are out on the euro labor market in euro and the Japanese yen is up and the sun's rising in the east and this and that <laughs> and we can only get you fourteen dollars. And what they're doing when they do that is they're stealing this amount from you. And then they, from the company, and then they, they also do something, and this was very famous in the late 1990s, they do something called laddering. So they go, they first go, and they're going to allocate to a couple hedge funds who are their buddies. They're going to allocate this stock, so they get it at the 14, and they get the run out, and they, they get that amount. And there's a standard kickback in the industry of 30%. In tech deals, it's 40%. And there was a particular well-known banker here in town whose guys were, his name's Frank, won't, uh, but he had, you know, who, one of his guys was caught on tape by the DOJ saying, in Frank's deals, the cut's 50%. So uh, there's a kickback, and it comes in the form of excess trading commissions. What they also do is the, the hedge funds that are getting the stock are told, you know, to put small bids in here and help take the stock up. So when you see these stocks come out at 14 bucks and they run up to 30 right away, Anyone with an economic sense knows that that's not how, how things work. It's been, they basically have stolen this amount from the company and this from the public. And, and then 30 to 40, 50% is kickback, which is why in the last days of Arthur Levitt at the SEC, he was all fixated on this subject of excess trading commissions. Because what they would do is 
<coughs> there's a way to do the kickback without leaving fingerprints on it. So the Dutch auction avoids all this. The Dutch auction basically finds where's the real market clearing price, gets <coughs> the real owners in the stock from the beginning. It's a much better system than the conventional IPO. <coughs> and we felt uh, <coughs> something, felt something of a moral obligation is strange. Thank you, sir. Peter, as, uh, as strange as that may sound, we felt kind of a moral obligation to be the first to do this. And we were told if you do this, you will be a pariah for life on Wall Street. I had the executive vice president of a bank say that to me. Wow. Yeah, because this is a system that has made the banking industry quite a bit of money. And they don't want to see anyone else. They stand shoulder to shoulder to prevent anyone from breaking into the system. Gotcha. Michelle, hopefully you're taking note wherever you are. Michelle, our office manager, is crazy on IPOs usually whenever they come out. <laughs> Warren Buffett says, if you ever sit down at a poker table and in 15 minutes you haven't figured out who the pigeon is, it's because you're the pigeon. Oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> if you're taking part in this stuff, unless you're one of those inside valued hedge, you know, hedge fund players who are getting the inside scoop, you're the pigeon at the table. So you took the company IPO in less than three years? Does that seem fast? You keep mentioning it. Yeah, this seems pretty fast. I don't know. Maybe these days it's like, you know, people go pretty wild with it. But how, what was the point where you decided it was time to do the IPO? And well, we had, we had an extraordinary growth. Now, we did lose money, but it wasn't the gobs and gobs of money that most of the Internet retailers had been losing in the late 90s. We were typically running within 1% of break-even. And growing, we did we went from 500,000 to 2 million the first year, then to 30 million, 70, 130, 250, oh, wow. 500. So somewhere in there we needed capital to, we couldn't support that growth out of our own right. cash flow. We did have positive cash flow, but we, we were running on a computer. Our, our, our computer was half the size of that that was running the whole site. It was an HP N-class box. And, you know, it was right when we were $20 million or $30 million, but we, before we know it, we're $500 million. And it was something like Star Trek, where on, during in Christmas season when the waves would show up, we'd have people you know, in Star Trek divert all emergency power to the shield. We'd actually be shutting off parts of our site and diverting the, the process... It was when we had really serious computer scientists come through, they would just, they would say, everything we see here is shaking. Literally, one guy said, a professor said, you have shaken my faith in my entire subject. Because <laughs> there's no way you haven't followed any of the rules. Everything's just sort of slapped together. And we were just nursing it along. But eventually, we had to go out and buy a $100 million of enterprise class systems and do everything right. And that was a couple few year process. And so that's you, really where we had to go out for the big money. Okay. Let's talk a little about world stock and how, how did that idea come about and uh, what impact has it made? How's it going? Well, thank you. My, it's actually my favorite uh, my, the, uh, business idea of which I'm most proud of. It's not intended to be. A, a, but a, after two, the first two years of overstock where I was working really insane hours, I took a vacation, went to Cambodia, I was motorcycling around, and in Cambodia, there are a lot of landmine survivors, uh, and they get retrained as potters and weavers and silversmiths and such. 
And I got thinking about you know, how great this product is, but it will never really make it into the mass retail system because as I was looking at it all from the supply chain side, I realized, well, this is what we had just built a great supply chain to handle. We could deal with handling small quantities of disparate products from a fragmented supplier base. So I came back and we opened up on September 10th, 2001, not an auspicious time, but I opened up a department at Overstock called Worldstock. And the idea was we would just carry the goods of third world uh, or developing world artisans and sell it at as small a markup as possible and just to cover our costs. And we've actually become, I think we might be the largest fair trade organization in the world after Oxfam. We do about, I think it's about $30 million a year. We've sent $75 million back to our suppliers. We have over 10,000 artisans in 50 countries. There was a period that we uh, were actually the largest by 05 or 06. We became the largest uh, private employer in Afghanistan which is 1,500 people, 1,300 of them women. We focus where possible on women suppliers, female suppliers. But, of course, we're with both. I'm not sure saying that you're the largest private employer in Afghanistan is like saying I'm a rich man in, Bul in Bulgaria. Uh, but we actually stopped in Afghanistan after a couple of years because of all the corruption. And it starts off with we want $100 to let this container leave. Then we want $100 to look at the paperwork to decide if the container can leave. Then $100 to, you know. So uh, we now work with the refugee camps there. But we, we focus on women. I'm reminded of something I learned at Stanford. Yes, my doctorate is actually from Stanford. And I spent a lot of time in the Bay Area. And there was a... Uh, development economist named Partha Descoop that I worked under. And I remember reading these papers about how they, they do an experiment where you take the, the weight of children is actually a really good indicator of the health in a family. And so you take one village and you go in and increase the income of men in the uh, village and then you look for some change in the weight of children. And it turns out you get nothing. You get, as this economics paper put it, which I thought was funny, he said, you get an increase in consumption in alcohol, tobacco, and hookers. <laughs> I said that to Mr. Buffett once, and he said, yeah, yeah, and the rest of it they waste. <laughs> <laughs> Referring, I should be clear, to an old line of W.C. Fields that I spent half my income on alcohol, whiskey, and, and cigars, the other half I waste. So anyway, but they do that experiment, then you, you do it with women, and you increase the income of women, and you immediately see this dramatic increase in the weight of children. And they've done the experiment across Central Asia and Africa and South America, and it's always the same effect. If you want, women invest in the future. They invest calories in their children. As a, and so if you want to change the world, I think it's all about women, frankly. And so world stock focuses, where possible, on women's co-ops, and it doesn't come from any real political commitment. It's just a pragmatic, if you really want to change things, that's where you, that's where you want to increase uh, income. So world stock, uh, I think we recently passed about $75 million we'd sent back to the suppliers. We, uh, it's just a department. So within this, within this website devoted to rapacious capitalism, overstock, there's one little corner, world stock, that, that does this. And I understand the same idea has started that there are other companies doing this now. I, I'm not, I haven't followed too closely, but 
And how do you choose which what to sell and who to hire and the terms of what they do? We have a wonderful woman who runs this, Angela Ramirez. She's uh -huh. actually originally from Colombia. And she has, I tell her, she's got every woman's dream job, travel and shop. She's <laughs> out there around the world. She builds supply chains, okay. Central Asia, Latin America, Africa. We have to generally find the right people to be hooked up with in each, in each country. Uh, but we do have people we get hooked up with. Typically, we avoid the NGO community, especially the big NGOs, but we do work with, sometimes, like in Haiti, there was a wonderful NGO that had organized a couple hundred people into workshops, and they were making something, and we, so we deal with that NGO. But typically, we're just going right out and finding co-ops to deal with, and they sign, and we also have inspections about that they'll, it, basically, you don't want formal production. It's not factory production. It's household production or small workshops. What, um, tell me a little bit what's going on at Overstock now. Any new initiatives, anything interesting? Um, you mentioned e, E20, E20. Yeah, I've, I've uh, about two years ago, I got very interested in E20. Well, we had our ups and downs, like all business. We had ups and downs. We got profitable. We actually have been cash flow positive for most of our history. Got gap net income, made $8 million, made $15 million. Last year was a bit of a setback. Haven't announced our numbers yet, but... It was a soft year, uh, but we seem to be, you know, it's business. Uh, about two years ago, I got very interested in Enterprise 2.0, and there was a book by McAfee. Is that the, the big book on Enterprise 2.0 is developing platforms and tools that let you all collaborate, and I found a wonderful company out here, actually. I have no financial anything in these guys, but it's called Spigot. And it's some ex-Stanford guys who modeled the way that ideas flowed up in a, uh, in a healthy organization. And, for example, put it this way, you've probably all heard of prediction markets. I didn't have the greatest success with prediction markets, and I was very big on prediction markets. Prediction markets are based, let me take another step back, there was a book called um, The Wisdom of Crowds. And it is how knowledge and information is scattered everywhere in an organization. And say if you create a market and you let people bet on outcomes, how much more accurate it is than conventional planning. Well, I didn't find uh, that to be, I found a, that there was, it, it's true, but there's a narrow class of problems that can be solved by that technology is what I eventually determined. And I am intuitively, I'm super pro-market, I'm a big fan of a, economist named Friedrich Hayek, it means I'm very open to this paradigm, that there is information. You know, the Dilbert cartoons are correct. I, I am the Dilbert manager, the pointing hair manager sitting in the corner who doesn't know anything. I really think that that's a fair depiction. It's not that I don't want to know more. It's just hard. It's the nature of organizations. You can't know everything that's going on out there. So if you can create tools that, that surface the knowledge that is out there, it's healthy. Well, prediction markets were supposed to do that. I had not the greatest success with them, but in the process, I came on this company, and it's a, it's a, I think, a new type of software. It's been around a few years. It's called Idea Graduation, or Idea Management software, and I think they pretty much invented the class, although there's a few smaller competitors now. And the idea is something like a prediction market, only. It's, where it's an innovation community. You can enter ideas. Other people are commenting on ideas, voting them up and down and such. 
and the better ideas gradually float out of the system. And it mimics what's supposed to happen in a healthy organization. And the fact that you voted something up, it matters more based on what other, it matters what other people think of you, when, or positive or negative. So it really has a lot of cool technology that, uh, anyway, it turned out to be enormously powerful. And I give them, I speak you know, positively about them when I can. I have no interest whatsoever in this company, but they seem to have a, a real new, uh, powerful new type of technology. We went from that, and this is how I spend my time these days. I, for the last two years, my focus in the company has been on the Enterprise 2.0 stuff. We went and got SharePoint, and I know Microsoft SharePoint to, up to 2007 was not considered a very robust or user-friendly product. It came out with a new version uh, last year, and it's fantastic. And so there's a common platform. There's like a dashboard that everybody in the company, 1,500 people, come in and log on to in the morning. And we're, we're making that the platform on which we hang all this technology that we're building. And we have found Enterprise 2.0 to be one of the best investments it's a, uh, you know, we've come across. It's a great use of time, and it's very cheap. And everything from, you know, you log on in the morning, and all, we're trying to make the company more and more agile. Our software development has become agile. We're trying, I'd love to break up all the departments in the company and have things be based on projects rather than stove pipes and chimneys. And we've had a lot of success at that, I'd say, with this technology. And on every, every project has a community of people involved in it. And so it has something like a, almost a Twitter. It has all this enterprise 2.0 social networking technologies project by project. And you can come in in the morning, and all your deliverables for all the different projects you're on are all screened, are all surfaced for you. The data from, if there are any metrics reporting on how various projects are going, it's all there. We can put up videos. It's just really let us, you know, my great problem is how do you keep a organization that's grown to 1,500 people, how, how do you keep it from becoming a bureaucracy? And I've told you, I, I would love to break our company into, you know, 100 pieces right. of about 15, 15 yeah. 20 each. Well, this technology is a step in the direction. So I highly recommend exploring enterprise 2.0 technology. SharePoint being a, has about 40% of the market, but there's other very good systems out there that just plug into SharePoint. Cool. Well, I'd love to open it up to the audience. If we have questions, Brian is already raising his hand. <laughs> Go ahead. So, uh, I was really curious on your interest in women in the world market. Talk to us about the big O. <laughs> the big O. The big O. <laughs> have you discovered the secret of the big O? Well, we... <laughs> We have a fab, I have a fabulous colleague named Stormy who walked in off the street for a temp job about 10 years ago, $8 an hour temp job. Within about six months, she had 100 people. We had, at one point, we had a B2B effort. We had people calling stores and selling things, and she, uh, she was great. She just kind of worked her way up in the company, and after about two years, she was a vice president. And we never did any branding at the time. All of our advertising from the early days of the Internet, well, from the early days of us being online, late, 09, or late 1999, was all online because we discovered this thing, which back then was the secret sauce. Now everybody knows it, but you could just 
you know, you could stamp a cookie with the ID of where somebody came from, and then you look at how much you're spending on Yahoo versus how much you're spending on, on MSN, and you do some simple arithmetic, and you figure out which dollar is getting you more. Believe it or not, in 99 and 2000 and 2001, people were not thinking that way. It was amazing. There were enormous arbitrages. We would find misprices of a thousandfold. There were places that something was mispriced by a, a, a thousandth of what it should have been priced for the market, you know, one particular site. It was just amazing. Now, I assume that's all everybody understands that yeah. now, right? Yeah. Believe it or not, in 01, 02, but so we never branded. We never did any branding until this woman came. And she came to me in June of 2003 or 4. And she said, got an idea. Let's change the, let's start branding. Uh, and let's brand the O. Let's make the O what people remember. And someday let's change our name and to O.com. And that was the... And we could even introduce products like uh, Costco has Kirkland. You know, Costco sees that something's selling well. They go to that same factory in Taiwan and they get the same microwave oven made, but a couple buttons are changed or something, and they call it Kirkland. That we could do that. That was the idea. So in order to brand the O, we uh, and we didn't use an ad agency. She well, she went down to Hollywood, found a director, found this actress wrote the script and produced this commercial. That was the one, the woman saying, have you discovered the secret of the big O? <laughs> it was really, it took about two months. It was, it was brilliant. And she, uh, we, that, that really took us from about $100 million to $500 million over a few years, is that campaign. And uh, the, the, Woman in question, her name is Sabina. She's German. If you listen closely, it's, it's uh, so anyway, that was the big O campaign. However, as you may have heard last year, we've never been able to get O.com. There's a, there's a whole bunch of legal reasons that ICANN is not releasing and VeriSign are not releasing single letter URL, .com URLs. Now, they are with other things like .info and such, but they're not doing it with... There was a moratorium put in 1993 that hasn't been lifted. And so we did try last year to introduce O.co. And it turned into a big, big uh, well, didn't work well. It didn't work well because what we discovered by the, we were introducing it as a shortcut to overstock with the idea that if it caught on, we might eventually see its brand emerge out of overstock and see overstock. We weren't really adamant that that happened. We were going to see if it was possible. What happened, though, was in the fourth quarter, we discovered that sort of for every 13 people trying to reach O.co, eight were typing O.com. And that, so we were just throwing away a huge amount of revenue and branding dollars and such. So we have turned back, and you don't see O.co in our advertisements, or you just see it listed as a shortcut. It's not front and center. So that's... Uh, uh, so that's the story of the big O and Overstock and O.co. What percentage of the audience? About 55. 55. We have really a nice female demographic. Uh, uh, a very different shopping behavior than men, too. It's really interesting. If you look at the first, 
and of course, I assume everybody knows that as you talk about branding or marketing, it's hard not to lapse into awful sounding generalities. But for example, the average order size of a, of a woman when she comes is her first order might be $70. And she gets it, sees if she likes it, sees if she likes the customer service and so on and so on. And then she orders something for $90. And it works up like that. Where men come, they come several more times before purchasing, but their first order, average order size, might be $180. There's really, it's among the, I think of old school marketing as breaking things up by demographics, because now you can do so much on behavior versus demographics. But there are some patterns in male-female shopping that are quite stark, how different they are. Any other questions? Uh, go ahead up here. Well, interesting question. At the beginning, at the beginning, we were buying from jobbers, and then we became, we grew to the size we had become a jobber, and then we really became an Uber jobber. We started selling to the guys who had supplied us. There is a natural limitation on liquidation in that it doesn't, <clears throat> if you're doing true liquidation, you can't really get above about 30 stores because liquidation goods become available in blocks of, a few hundred at the most, five or six hundred, and there just are not efficiencies. If you're breaking products down to, if you've got a hundred stores and you're getting 300 of some item and you're sending three to each store, it, it just gets less and less efficient. So the pattern has been for liquidation companies to at some point go and source in China. You get or source in Asia. You get something that works, you get a doll that works, and then you take it to Hong Kong and say, well, can you make this but you know, we'll knock it off and we'll leave something out and we'll make it a bit cheaper. Uh, that's been the pattern for liquidation. It hasn't affected us as much because in a sense we have just one store and it's still very efficient for us to, uh, to buy and bring things in. Uh, however, somewhere along the line, there were some suppliers that we started saying we were buying you know, vacuum cleaners from them month after month and at some point, and they, let's say we're in Chicago, and we said, let's save the expense of you trucking them to us. We'll just open up a hole in the back of our database. You load them up. They'll appear on our site, and we'll send the orders to you electronically and ship. Now, of course, everybody knows that now, but that's not, we were the first. I mean, eBay's model is purely like that, but we were, after eBay, we were the first retailer with that kind of a model. We call it the partner model. That's become 85% of our business. And so 85% of our business is, in fact, jobbers out there or small manufacturers who are making the stuff and selling it through our site. So now 85% of the products on our site are actually not in our warehouses and you, you, we don't touch. Well, it's right on 1 p.m. So if you guys have questions, come up right after the event. But I'd like to thank Mr. Patrick Byrne for such an awesome talk. Great talk. I loved, I loved all the answers.